Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came above upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Amen. In the novel Les Miserables, Jean Valjean stumbles into the home of Monsieur Le Cure, the bishop, and Valjean is exhausted. Anybody seen the stage production of Les Mis? Yeah, okay. We got several of you. Yes, yes. Anybody seen the Hugh Jackman movie? What are our thoughts on Hugh Jackman singing? What about Russell Crowe, though? Uh, right, yeah. Who knew, who knew Wolverine could sing, right? Jean Valjean is exhausted. And he's been released after 19 long years of imprisonment only to find that his chains follow him wherever he goes. Though he has served his time, he has to carry this yellow passport. And it's like a brand that labels him in his society as a convict or as dangerous. And so he's unable to find work because to work you have to have your papers in order. And so John Valjean, as he interviews for a job, will present his yellow passport and they basically say, nope. He goes to an inn and they won't even take him in because of this yellow passport. And so he's kind of without any hope. And what he finds as he stumbles, he finds somebody in the town who says, go to the house of the bishop. Go knock on that door, is what it says in the, in the story. So Jean Valjean, having nothing better to do and no other options, makes his way to the bishop's house. And he knocks on the house of the bishop, and what he finds is a quite different response. The bishop is not interested in his yellow passport. The bishop doesn't address him as a dog or as you there. He calls him sir, and he welcomes the man into his house. The bishop says to Jean Valjean, yes, this society will label you because of your yellow passport, but you have another identity, a fundamental name that cannot be erased by any of your actions. The bishop says, as he's talking to Jean Valjean, they're sharing a table. And Jean Valjean is just like, why are you treating me so well? Like, you, know, you know, that sense that you see so often in stories, or you see this in our society, people that have been treated in such a way that they almost feel like they begin to deserve it. And Jean Valjean's like, this is so different than what I've experienced. Why are you doing this? And the bishop says to Jean Valjean, he says, you could not help telling me when you knocked on my door, who you were. And the bishop says, I have no need. What need have I to know your name? Besides, before you told me your name, I knew I, you had one which I knew. And Jean Valjean is kind of perplexed by this. 
He says, you knew my name? Like you knew who I was? And the bishop replies, yes. You are called my brother. So Jean Valjean is sitting with the bishop and he's, he's, he's just perplexed by this kindness, by the radiance of this man. And the bishop says, long before, long before you told me what you had done or your name, I knew who you were. You are my brother. And Jean Valjean had been sub- subjected to cruel rejection, hardened by years of inhumane treatment in prison. And a person can, to- can only take so much erosion of their identity before they start to believe it themselves. Jean Valjean, even though the bishop had opened up his home to him, what you see in the story, is that he would soon steal these priceless artifacts from the home. Because Jean Valjean had seen enough of the world to know that even though this bishop had extended to him this incredible kindness, that Jean Valjean still needed to take care of himself. And so Jean Valjean steals these priceless artifacts, and he tries to make his escape, but he gets caught. And the police capture him. And as they arrest him, they find these artifacts, and they know they have a sense that they belong to the bishop because they've seen him. So they call the bishop in. And the bishop comes into the scene. He sees the stuff that Jean Valjean has stolen from him. And listen, like the bishop had showed this incredible kindness to the man. Like, you, you could see how you'd be offended by that. Like, I, I welcomed you into my house. I had you over for dinner, and this is how you repay me? But that's not the bishop's response. The bishop says, friend, you forgot the candlesticks. And so in this moment, when Jean Valjean thinks he's going back to prison, thinks he's going to live this life on repeat all over again, he is released and liberated by the abundance and the kindness of this man. Now, this happens in the very beginning of the story. This grace, this incredible new identity. And Jean Valjean will live the rest of his life trying to make sense of this moment. Because when the bishop comes to him and he says, no, you forgot the candlesticks too. After the police depart, the bishop says to Jean Valjean, he says, Jean Valjean, with these candlesticks, I buy your soul back from perdition. You are no longer a slave to the deeds of darkness. Now you are to live your life in the light. And this is the beginning of Jean Valjean's story. This is the moment that changes his life forever, this new identity. And Ecclesia, this Les Mis story is an incredible mirror of the gospel story. And if you've seen it, you know, it's just moments of incredible grace. And if you spend your time around here, I'm not even a musical guy. Like, I went to see this movie with Courtney many years ago, and I thought I was going to be in for three hours of, like, absolute and abject boredom. But what I saw was this, like, incredible display of the grace of Jesus. And then I was like, I have to read this book. This is incredible. And the book's even better. But if you hang around out here, you'll hear a lot of Les Mis references because... That is rich and good. But this story is an incredible mirror of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection has pronounced his new identity over us. Though we said crucify him, though we were the ones that even though Jesus welcomed us to his table, we still betrayed his kindness and still left him alone. Jesus pronounces, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus gives us a new identity far before we have done anything on his behalf. He calls us daughters and sons 
He declares once and for all as he rises from the dead that the grace of God has conquered. And our call is simply to accept this new identity that's been spoken over us to say, Jesus, I trust you. But just like Jean Valjean's story, this pivotal moment is not the end, it's only the beginning. And the question that follows and the question that we want to address today is now what? Because I think for for many of us, if you've spent any time in church, and maybe for some of you, you grew up with this. Like this is something that you do every week. You've been doing it for years. And maybe you've been told the things that lead to growth. Okay, read the Bible, pray. And you find both to be somewhat difficult or maybe boring. Maybe it all just feels like work to you, and you're just like, man... I don't know, should, should, should following God, should pursuing this life be this hard? Or maybe you've been told that anything that appears like work, maybe anything that has that appearance is to be avoided because that's the opposite of grace. The theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard says of this kind of tension, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And so I think as we explore this morning, we want to explore what do we do with this new life that we've been given, as we're in this vision series, we're talking about the way that God is forming us as a people. And I think for us, as we're gathered here this morning to begin to pursue a life that intentionally follows after Jesus is the greatest gift that we could give to the world. A transformed heart, a transformed person that is giving out of the abundance of God their life to the world. And so this morning we've been in a vision series kind of asking the questions, who is God shaping this church to be? And friends, if you're new here, welcome. We're about six months old. We're six months into this project and pursuing what does it mean to be a church in Princeton for Princeton? And we're so glad you're here. We're so grateful that you've come to join us this morning, and we hope that you'll not only see something that you're a part of for an hour on a Sunday morning, but something you can immerse yourself in and be a part of. But we want to pursue what, what is God, who is he shaping us to be, and how are we to behave, how are we to act in, on the way there. Now, the best picture, and a picture that many uh, Christians have come to when describing what does the life with Jesus look like is that of an apprentice. An apprentice is not merely a student. You know, the way we do education so often in our day is you sit in a classroom, you take notes, and you try to, like, just digest all this information and then spit it back out. Like, that's the way we teach just about everything, right? But an apprentice is not somebody who's sitting in a classroom. An apprentice is in the shop. An apprentice is working alongside the master. An apprentice is someone who spends time with the master, watching them work, but not only watching them, then eventually they're invited to do what the master does. And there's a progression in apprenticeship from novice to mastery. And I think there's something similar that goes on in our spiritual lives. Now, friends, our spiritual lives, those lives that we live that are like somehow God-facing, are not linear. Like we could be going on this track, we feel like everything is amazing and like following Jesus is so easy and then something happens in our life that seems like it derails that upward momentum that we had. And friends, that's not God saying, oh, you, you had it right, you got off track, now you have to get going upward. That's the beauty of the life that Jesus shows us. 
The beauty of the life that Jesus shows us is that it's in our darkest moments that God some, sometimes is doing the most profound things. Even uh, Christians throughout the centuries have beheld this kind of what they call the dark night of the soul. These moments where everything that you've done historically to follow Jesus doesn't seem like it's working anymore. Where you feel like God is absent, that he has removed himself. And what they've seen, just kind of in the rich tradition of following Jesus, is that these moments are often the, the, the moments that bring this incredible new life forward. And so our lives are not linear. We tend to think in this sort of progression of success and just things get better and better. But what we find is that real life is often quite different from that. What we find is that things happen and they derail the thing that we think we're pursuing. So this morning, we want to see how we can begin to apprentice our lives to Jesus. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate just a couple of ways that we as a church have identified, a couple of spheres or layers of life that we live in apprenticeship to Jesus. And then I'm going to give you like one or two really practical things you can do in those spaces. And so today, if you're like, just tell me what to do, this is a good message for you. Like normally for me, I kind of like to, 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 you know, maybe not tell you the whole answer, kind of lead you to a, a vision and a place. But today I'm just going to say, hey, do this. So if that's for you, welcome. Now, I started with this Les Mis story. Honestly, that'd be a really good story for the end of a message, you know, when it's time to like, let's, let's bring this to your heart. But I started with that story for a very simple reason. Because our becoming apprentices to Jesus is all grounded in this astounding grace of God. It is the identity that he has graciously bestowed upon us. It is not something, as Dallas Willard said, that you earn. It is something that we respond to with our efforts. And so this, when we say, yes, Jesus, I trust you, you may not know what that means for your life. You may not know what that entails, everything that that, that will involve but you're saying, I'm going to take this step in response to your call to follow you. And so I started with that story because this is the identity that has been graciously and abundantly bestowed upon us. Paul writes in Romans, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Friends, he is not waiting for you to figure it out. He's not waiting for you to have the right language to talk about God. He has already done it. He has already made a way for us to follow him. And so I wanted to start with that story because I wanted to start because all of this stuff is going to be about what we do. But this is a doing that is grounded in being. This is a doing that's grounded in the abundant love of God as we immerse ourselves in his life. There's a writer named James Clear, and in his book Atomic Habits, he talks about the difference between behavior-based identity or behavior, habit-based behavior, excuse me, and identity-based behavior. He says, if you want to be a writer, you have to allow the subtle shift in your thinking from, I hope to be a writer someday, to the identity-based behavior, I am a writer. And now, this sounds like some new age, the secret kind of stuff, like Oprah Winfrey's like, yes, just like throw it into the universe and it will come back to you. But that's not what's going on here. What James Clear is talking about is that if you see yourself as a writer, you will engage certain habits of behavior. That every day you will sit down and write. Any of you who are writers know how painful this is. You stare at a blank page 
and you're like, are there words that will come? Can I speak a coherent sentence today? But James Clear is saying that these are the kinds of behaviors that begin to bring forth a writer. You start to look at the world with curiosity. You start to look at the world with humility. You start note-taking and reading a lot. These are the habits of a writer. When you see yourself as the goal that you're trying to reach, you begin to act and behave and work like you are already that thing. So today, I just want to hear you say this. And if this is true for you, if it's not true for you, you can just mumble it, you know, like you used to do in the choir where you like watermelon. I am an apprentice of Jesus. Would you? All right. Let's say it like you believe it. I am an apprentice of Jesus. Man. Beautiful. So we want to operate out of this identity. And I want to just highlight a couple of different behaviors that are, that are shifting our mind from this behavior-based um, identity to an identity-based. So we've been in this, uh, we've been in this series, the vision series. Uh, in the spring, I taught a five-week series on some of the content that we're going to cover today. So I have proven over and above that I can talk about this for about four hours. Um, so we'll go a little bit less than that today. But Rich read for us in Acts chapter 2, and I want to see, this is usually a passage that's used to talk about the, the vibrancy and the beauty of the early church, and it has everything to do with that. But what I want to focus on today in this small section of Scripture is how much behavior is wrapped up in, these, in this uh, section. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, they devoted, they devoted themselves. Now, we'll stop right there. Countering our formation in the way of Jesus is the way that our culture is constantly apprenticing us to other ways. Devotion is not a common word in our cultural lexicon, but it is a habit that we engage without ever thinking. Again, Mary Oliver's prescient line, attention is the beginning of devotion. Now, it can be very simple yet painful uh, to simply ask yourself, what am I paying attention to? I got it this morning. I get this weekly screen time report on my phone. That's humbling. And as we scan through the rest of this section in Acts, our attention, we'll see, is, is the sum total of our worship and our awe. What we see is that awe was, was behold, like all of the believers were just in awe of what God was doing. They're paying attention to this. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers. So they're devoted to these things. They're living with their whole energy towards these things. It says that they shared their resources. So not only devoted to themselves, not only devoted to their own life with God, they're devoted to one another. And in this church, you're talking about this incredible seismic moment that's happened. There were all these people gathered in Jerusalem, and then the Holy Spirit came down in Acts 2 and, and created this thing called the church. And in that moment, they're trying to figure out, like, what do we do? And there were all these people from out of town that had come into Jerusalem for Pentecost. And then the Holy Spirit shows up, and the church starts. And they're like, we have to stay here. Like, God's kingdom is coming. And so now this city that was never designed to support all these people that are just visiting for a time. Now the church is trying to figure out, how do we take care of each other? And so there's a need for devotion of not only spiritual and heart devotion, but of resources. And it says they devoted themselves. 
and they're in awe of what God is doing in in their midst. It says they spend every day in the temple and breaking bread together. They not only devote their hearts, they not only devote their wallets, they devote their time together. Now think about what our own culture directs us to turn our attention, our devotion towards. The author Tim Wu speaks of the attention merchants, which is a great name for a book. Those who seek to profit off of your attention. And again, you've heard me say it again. If you think the product is free, guess who the product is? Facebook, you can sign up for free. All you need is an email and all of your identity. Mark Zuckerberg with his vault. I'm sure he's a nice guy. Wu argues that there's never been a lack of attention merchants in in culture in general, that people have always said that if we can just get people to pay attention, then then these things will uh, be available to us. But they now have a new tool at their disposal. They have a tool of mass proliferation, like a weapon of mass destruction called the iPhone. Now, next time you're standing in line at Chipotle or at a coffee shop, just look around. Or you're on the train. What is everybody doing? The, uh, there's a photographer named Eric Pickersgill, and maybe you've seen this because you spend all your time online like I do. And he uh, put forth a little series where he just took the phones out of these pictures. And he said it was inspired. He was sitting at a diner in New York, and there was a family sitting next to him, a family of four. And three of them were on their phones. And the mom was just staring at the window. This sacred moment around the table is being intruded upon by another world, another presence, another moment. And just look around. Like, if you pay attention when you walk around today, just see how many people. Like This is the life that we live. And, guys, we are the experiment, right? Like, there's never been a generation that had this. They don't have a fire going, I should point out. And she's smoking in the garage, which doesn't seem like a great idea. Now, I tried, I tried an experiment where I just wouldn't do this. I just wouldn't buy into this. Uh, and then I saw this tweet. You can put that up, Jen. I saw a guy at Starbucks today, no iPhone, no tablet, no laptop. He just sat there drinking coffee like a psychopath. And I was like, maybe I shouldn't do that. People were like, what? just get on your phone. What are you doing, man? Now, these sorts of pictures are, are stunning, and obviously they are, uh, you know, very artistically uh, portrayed. But it's not just about the simple act of paying attention to your phone. I promise you, I'm not the anti-phone guy. Like, I, I try my best to, to put it in its place, but, you know, it's a tool, and we have, to, we have to control the tool and not let it control us. But the phone is just a gateway to all sorts of content, right? Like, it's just, you know, everything from, like, things that are, like, just kind of, awesome. Like yesterday I found out that two of our friends are having another boy. That's amazing. I would not have known that. Like how cool is that? That I, I can now see into their life when, when the cost of maintaining a friendship has gone down so much that I can just 
log online and be like, wow, that's awesome, and send them a text. Otherwise, I don't, you know, I don't know how people used to find out about things. But the phone is simply trying to form us, trying to shape us. And it's whoever's image, whatever we're beholding. You know, Augustine would, would sort of, in his own way, is trying to tell us, like, the things that you pay attention to, the things that you're looking at, you're becoming like. So, the first thing that these new disciples are doing here in Acts 2 is simply devotion. They focus, as their childhood faith had taught them, these are Jewish men and women that had prayed every day, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. So they focus that on this Jesus of Nazareth, this Messiah that has revealed himself as the resurrected Lord of all the earth. And today we want to look at just four layers of what God has, has invited us into, the four layers that we kind of live in, in relationship to God and to others in the church. And so I'm going to walk through these, and we're going to attach at least one practice to each one of them. So I hope they're helpful. If you take notes, this is a great time to, to do that, because we're going to have a couple of uh, practices that you can engage. The first layer, we call them the four C's. And we say that life is cultivated, that a life with Jesus doesn't just happen, Right? Like, any of you that do anything that's worth doing, you probably worked at it. Like, you're probably not this idiot savant that just woke up and was awesome at something, right? You play music, or you're just really good at accounting, or whatever it is that you enjoy, or whatever it is that you do for work, you probably had to work at it. And again, Dallas Willard tells us, the grace of God is not opposed to our effort. It's not opposed to us immersing our whole self in it. It's opposed to earning It's opposed to me saying before God, hey, look at what I've done. I have all these things in my ledger that you need to take account of. Jesus is like, just follow me. Just come near to me. And so these four C's are just different layers of life that we've seen that we operate in. The first is the word, again, that's not often used in our culture, the contemplative. We see the object of the disciples' devotion, the word of God and prayer. Now, again, as we started, if you're thinking, like, if this guy's going to tell me to read my Bible and pray, and that's his answer to how I, you know, I've tried that. I opened up to Leviticus. Things got weird. If that's you, that's okay. It's weird for all of us. Now, so I want to give you just a simple practice, because the Bible is not as self-explanatory as it may seem. It's a cultural document from several thousand years ago. It was written in a different language to a different culture. They're not Westerners. They have different expectations about life. And so we do need help. We need gatherings like this to help us to read the Word of God. But there's this other thing that goes on when we read the Word of God. It doesn't just need to be this historical document that we understand and we kind of have the context for. You know, we understand that Ephesians might have been a circular letter written to a bunch of churches. We don't need to know all this. Because the Word of God certainly operates at this level. Yes and amen. But it also meets us at this deeply personal level. And so what I want to challenge you to do is simply either the Psalms or the Gospels. The Psalms are this book of prayers in the middle of the Bible. The Gospels are the books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're primarily biographies of Jesus. Pick one of those. And then I'm just going to commend to you a simple practice. First of all, you're going to start with silence. Five to ten minutes. Any of you ever tried to engage five minutes of silence and found out? You're like, wow, it's been 30 seconds. But try, as you might, to just be present. Try to understand. Now, I have some friends that they, what they do is when they're trying to engage silence, they try to envision themselves like God is looking at them. 
and he's looking at them with love and he's looking at them with adoration, like that God is actually proud of them. And for me, that's kind of easy. I think about how I look at my own kids. Like I, don't, uh, I look at them and I'm just in awe. I'm in wonder. And so maybe God is a better father than I am. And maybe he looks at us like that. And so they envision that. Other people pray like a simple, you can almost call it a mantra, a prayer of, of sort of repetition. There's, there's this historical prayer that was prayed in the church called the, uh, the Christ prayer. Uh, Christ Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a prayer found in the Gospels. And just pray that over and over again. But what you're trying to do is just trying to focus. Like, again, we live in such a scattered world. Like, every bit of our technology is designed to grab our attention. Right? Like those little notifications that appear on your computer screen, like that's designed to divide your attention and say, hey, look over here. It's like the technological equivalent of squirrel. And then what you want to do as you're sitting there in silence is pick a small section of scripture. Now, again, Psalms or Gospels, great place to start. And ask this very profound question Lord, what are you trying to say to me? Again, if God is not real and all of this is a myth, then you're crazy. But if Jesus is risen and the story is true, then he actually will meet you where you are. And I've seen it, I've seen it in the lives of my friends. I've seen it in my own lives that God, it's not that you get this like lightning bolt from heaven. You just have this sense like, huh. And it, oftentimes for me, it comes in the form of curiosity It's not a moment that I walk away from this time and I'm like, I know what God said to me today. It's just something that I feel like I've been directed towards that's in that passage. So you pick a small section, 8 to 15 verses, kind of in there. It'll take you 30 seconds to read. Read through it quite a few times and just say, Lord, what are you saying? And just pay attention. Pay attention to what God is drawing you towards. And then simply pray, Lord, help me. Help me to see this more clearly. Help me to live this out. Help me to become this kind of person. Friends, what you've just done is a devotional. You know, that's 20 minutes, maybe. Maybe early in the day, maybe at lunchtime. And this is just one example of a way you can do that. There are literally endless ways you can engage with Scripture and with God. But this is a great way to start. Okay, the next layer, as we've focused on the contemplative, the contemplative is sort of our life vis-a-vis God, our life together with him. It's communal. Now, Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love God without other people around because we have to learn to love the people that God made in his image, even the people that really annoy us. And it says in Acts 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, which is like this communal sharing of life, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Everything that happens here in this passage that we're reading today is communal. It's all done together. To be an apprentice to Jesus, and as we've already stated, you already said, you are, is not something that can be done on our own. We live in this world that tells us that you do you, you're this isolated individual, as long as you don't hurt anybody else, that's the only way that you affect anybody else, but that's not the way the Bible sees the world. The Bible sees the world as this collective whole, that we are beholden to our neighbors, that those who are 
the weakest and the poorest amongst us are our neighbors. And as we serve God, we are shaped by him and we worship him together. Around the table, in the home, this is where church takes on its fullest life. So many people I, have, I speak to have rejected the idea of church, but I find often they've never experienced the best part of church, which is community. And friends, this week we're starting our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's a great uh, just place to dive in. We have some communities that meet. We will find a community for you. If you're interested, there is a sign-up sheet. Put your name down. We will find a place for you because we believe this is at the heart of the life that Jesus calls us towards. And a couple of practices we see as, as we gather in Christian community. You see, it's not just a club that we get to sort of say, these people are in, these people are out. No, G, uh, Acts shows us that there is a way of living together in community. And just a couple of practices. First, the breaking of bread. Yes. Like, how good is God? He says, like, the fundamental thing you do when you get together is eat. I, what more do I need to tell you that he's good? Right? And so we believe, we, we put the table at the center of our communities and just said, this is such a sign of the kingdom of God. And in our culture, it's such a countercultural sign. It is so hard. We have a family of five. My wife works full time. I work full time. It is so hard to carve out time for a meal. But when we're able, it is the most sacred and holy moment. Even if it's just like, I mean, our little kids will sit down for like 10 seconds and they'll be like, can I go? It's like you literally ate nothing. But just for that moment, it is so rich. And so, I, friends, I encourage you, as, as people who are pursuing the life of Jesus, we have to pursue the table. The second thing is that it says they, they devoted themselves to the Word of God. Friends, there's something powerful. Even, you know, even if you've been in that Bible study where it's like you read the Bible and then it's like, well, what does that mean to you? Like, I don't know. Like, there's better ways to do it probably, but there are worse ways. And so reading the Word of God together, these, these words in the New Testament were designed to be read aloud. They were written as letters, and most people couldn't read. So they would assign one person in the church, and they would read the entirety of the letter to the church. And so for many of us, this is public and corporate reading of Scripture is so powerful. Uh, the next thing is prayer. They prayed for one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer hate or condemn a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face, that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me, now we all know these people, is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sh sinner." And the last thing we see in Acts is they're selling their possessions and giving to one another as they have need, sharing. These people hold everything in common, which strikes our modern sensibilities and our consumerist mentality as terrifying. But there it is. And friends, if you're here this morning, you're saying, I don't have this kind of thing in my life. Can I just say as the pastor of this church, we will help you. I will help you find the kind of place that you can get connected. Um, and so I just want to encourage you to do that if that's not a part of your daily rhythm. Now, the next layer that we have is the congregational. That's what we're doing here today. This is good. It is so good that we're meeting together. There's a power release when we gather here on Sunday mornings. When we gather here on Sundays, we don't suggest that Sunday is somehow different than the other days. 
but we set it apart. We say that this is the place that we start our week, the day of resurrection historically, the day of Pentecost. It's the lens through which we see every other day of our week. You guys are a priesthood. You are sent out into the world. You're sent into places of business, places of of school, places where you walk your neighborhoods. And friends, you've been put in those places so that you might show what the kingdom of God looks like to people that would never see it otherwise. Friends, I spend a lot of time with people outside like the walls of a church, outside the wall. I don't have an office, so I just show up at coffee shops and hope not to get kicked out or and hope to have a conversation. I want to tell people about Jesus. Like that's something I get to do. It's a joy. But guess what? God hasn't put me in the in the place of all the people that you are surrounded with. The people that you work with. And you know why? Cuz I would annoy them. God has put you in that place. And as scary as that may sound, you are God's missionary strategy. And so each week when we gather, my heart and the thing I have to do so well for you is to help you see every part of your life as a piece of the kingdom of God. Not somehow like this is some sacred space and then we move out into the world. It's all one. It's all one under Jesus' reign and rule. Your work, your life with your family, your hobbies, your joy are all a part of God's kingdom. And that's my task and my job as your pastor is to help you to see it congruently and holistically. That it all matters. That it's all an opportunity to meet with Jesus. And it's all an opportunity to show people how beautiful Jesus is. And I, friends, I hope you pray for me. I, I, I pray that I do it well. But each week when we gather, we see the world anew in light of who Jesus is and in light of what he's done. And then we go to the places that we live and we work and we show and we try our best to live out of this abundant, gracious, and beautiful life. And friends, your life, the people that you're surrounded with, has everything to do with what God is doing in our community. And so I pray and I hope that that sense is so real to you. That the people you sit next to, the people you walk alongside, are people that Jesus died for. And I hope that you have an urgency for them. I hope that your heart is broken on their behalf, that they are lost, and that you want them to come home. And this is why we gather. And so a simple practice, as far as the congregational goes, show up. That was easy. Hey, congratulations, you did it. Be here. Friends, this is such a sign. It's such a beautiful morning today because there's this big thing going on at the pool. And it's kind of, you know, I, for, forgive us if you had any trouble parking. But I can't wait till the day, and I believe it's coming, when, when our situation is such that we are kind of a problem to those who are coming to the pool, that we've taken up all the parking spaces, but we've given them up. We've parked further away because you know, we follow Jesus. But that the neighborhood is going to begin to notice because there's something God is doing in our midst that is so much bigger than we could ask or imagine. And so show up, give of yourself, give your talents, sing, like join your voice. Like let's be a people here who are saying that God is doing something at this level. And the last layer, and I sort of touched on it, is just the commissional level, the co-missional, go out. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Friends, Your life has infinite significance. And God is wanting to work through your life to show people how good he is. And so just a simple practice along those lines. Think through the places that you spend your time. 
whether it's work, whether it's school, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you just see some people kind of often and others you don't see as often, it's your own kids. I mean, this is our call. How is God calling you to be a witness to the beauty of Jesus where you are? And make a list of 10 names. And friends, just pray for them. Call out to God on their behalf. So these four things, I think, are so vital to who God is forming us to be as we engage what it means to be an apprentice to Jesus. Now, think back to the beginning of our time together. The bishop, so full of the love of God, so overflowing that he's willing to be cheated, taken advantage of by this man, Jean Valjean. And amidst all of it, the bishop calls out Jean Valjean's true identity. You had an identity that you you didn't even tell me, but I knew. You are my brother. You are made in the image of God. You belong to him. And now think of it from Jean Valjean's perspective. And maybe for you, that's not so hard. He had been labeled a criminal, a threat. He carried around this yellow passport that told him he had no future because of what he had done in his past. He needed work and food. He needed somebody to look him in the eyes and say, you have significance, you matter, you valued. And it's not until he meets this bishop who just so happens to have been so radiantly and abundantly transformed by the love of God that he finds the things that he needs. Friends, we live in a world full of Jean Valjeans. People that are stumbling, aching to hear somebody say, you're not a number. You're not the, the, the card that you carry around. You're not the sum total of your darkest day or the worst thing you've done. You're not just this rolling ball of shame. You are a child of God. And friends, it's only by us, the people that are gathered here, being transformed by his love. Because the end product of spiritual formation is not that we can stand before God and say, God, look at all these things I've done for you. Jesus says there will be those that come to him that say, God, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick? Didn't we feed the hungry? And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Friends, the end point of our spiritual formation is that we would look like God that we would sound like God, that the welcome that we extend, the embrace that we offer would be that of Jesus himself. And so our spiritual formation is about us, but it's also about this world. It's about our families. And we have to take it back. We have to begin to engage what God is doing in our lives. Let us pray. Merciful Jesus, Lord, for those who are here today, God, God, who are wrestling with this reality, carrying around a yellow passport that says condemned, criminal, convict, shame. God, for those people, Lord, I I just pray that you in this moment show them your beautiful heart. God, would invite them to behold the reality of what you've done, Lord, that it is truly enough for each one of us. God, for those of us today who have been just complacent and just been kind of letting life happen to us, God, would you help us? Lord, in the same way that we we so often see things in our life that need to change, habits and, and things that we're doing, God, would you just bring that to us today? God, would you help us to see that your your call to spiritual formation is a call to relationship. It's a call to live our lives in the unfailing love that you offer us. 
Jesus, I pray that these simple practices would not just be items that we would we'd put on a list and check off, God, but they would be portals of transformation. Jesus, I ask that you would be near to us in this moment. God, would you heal what needs to be healed? God, would you restore what is broken? Jesus, would you bring us to a fullness of the knowledge of the way that you've taken care of us every step of the way? And would that fill our hearts with gratitude and joy? Lord, you're good. Lord, you see us. We love you. It's your name we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.